Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got a fun show today. Our guests are Damian Basarier and Alex Shahidi, co-CIOs of Evoke Wealth, a $20 billion plus RIA. They also entered the ETF game in 2019 when they launched the RPAR Risk Parity ETF. In today's episode, we're talking all things allocation and risk parity. The guys share their approach to portfolio construction, which focuses on risk management, and while still seeking an attractive expected return. We also talk about what true diversification looks like, something many investors are learning in a year when both stocks and bonds are down. As we wind down the show, we discuss the benefits of utilizing the ETF structure compared to mutual funds or separately managed accounts. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Damian Basarier and Alex Shahidi. Damian and Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Gentlemen, where do we find you today? In rainy Los Angeles. <laughs> we don't get to say that very often. <laughs> yeah, those are two words you don't hear next to each other very often. Well, uh, it's a sign of the end of times, raining in LA. It's also Fed Day, and you guys aren't the type that are going to be sitting here day trading this during the, the conversation, right? Or do I do I have that wrong? You're going to be doing some futures on every announcement, every tweet? What's the process over there on we're Fed Day? We're definitely long-term investors, so things like this aren't major events for us. So what does long-term mean? That's like a week, two weeks, month, quarter? <laughs> yeah, I guess to, to most that sounds like long-term. You know, we're looking at data every second and the news flow is constant. You know, over the short term, it's hard to predict where things go. It's in some ways it's easier to predict long-term. You get this reversion to the mean. So the longer, the better. And we're always fighting with our clients in terms of to them, shorter is long. For us, very long is is the way we think about it. Yeah, you know, we often say that, that you know that people are on their investing landscape. They say they have a long term horizon, but they really act on a, I don't know, 
one to two year, maybe if even less, like, or like, that's the way they think things like should play out, should work out. You guys chat with direct clients probably a lot more than I do. Is that an accurate statement or what is the kind of feeling you get from, and this isn't the in like indoctrinated people that have been with you forever, but kind of newer clients, people you talk to, what's the mismatch, if any? You know, the way I think about it, uh, and I'll let Demon jump in 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 a second, is there's two voices in your head. There's the logic and there's the emotion. And you can think of it as the the two people on on your shoulders, you know, shouting at you what they think you should do. And logic tends to be longer term and more rational and more well thought out. Whereas emotion is is something that we feel over a shorter term period. And what's interesting is most people make decisions based on their emotion. So I think I think people who are who try to be more rational, try to offset some of the pressure that comes from the short term emotion by saying, no, I, I know I'm feeling this way, but logic tells me to go that way. But most people respond to their emotions, especially if the logic isn't as sound and as thought out and as, and as experienced. So, so our sense is the people who tend to be less sophisticated are going to react to their emotions more because it's not as well grounded and, and vice versa. So that's just my experience working with clients. I just don't think humans are wired to think in long-term increments. And also in our business, it's counterintuitive. Unlike any other service that you receive where you can evaluate the outcomes over short time frames, you know, you go to the dentist, it's pretty clear whether your dentist knew what they were doing. And so you make the decision based on that one outcome, whether or not to go back. Whereas with your financial advisor, or when you're looking at market outcomes, there's so much noise in terms of any particular outcome relative to whether something is working that it just drives people to make decisions on the short-term basis like they do in every other aspect of their lives. And that's very reasonable to basically do the thing that's working in every other aspect of your life. In our business, if you simply do the thing that's working and avoid the thing that's not working, you end up with the worst possible outcome, right? And so that is just a very hard thing, I think, for most people to to do uh, in a disciplined way. You know, as, as we talk about emotions, does that play into your investment methodology at all. So what I'm talking about is like, you know, sentiment. We, we spend, I, I feel like I spend a lot of time talking about sentiment where, and a lot of people on Twitter or, or just the shoeshine indicator, the magazine cover indicator, we look at sentiment indicators. Is it something that plays into your process at all? Or is it something more that you bake into how do you talk to clients and kind of provide them with expectations in a base case? What influence does it have, if any? Uh, I think it definitely has an influence because it's related to how people respond. And and the way we think about uh, client portfolios is, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have what we think, just thinking of it from a math and purely, you know, model-driven approach, what an optimal portfolio looks like. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's there's what the typical portfolio looks like, and we, we can get into that more. And we think we, you should be a lot more diversified than mo- what most people have. But somewhere in the middle is how much the client can handle. And depending on how emotional they are, how biased they are to the way other people invest, to whatever their experience has been, we can't go all the way to what we think is the best portfolio because if they can't handle it, they're going to sell it at the wrong time. And, and so emotions and behavior play a significant role in figuring out what the optimal portfolio is for that specific client. 
And, and so education is part of it, how emotional they are is part of it. And our job as advisors is to find the right point along that spectrum to basically get as diversified as they can get without going veering too far off what their comfort level is. And so we have to, in some ways, play psychologists to try to understand what that means. And so ignoring the portfolio composition aspects, which we'll probably spend most of the time on today, are there any sort of hacks being the wrong word, but insights you've garnered over the years talking to investors and educating them that really help? You know, and, and part of what I'm thinking about is, you know, we don't do a great job educating people on personal finance and investing in general, you know, through schools. And so a lot of people come to a blank slate. It, there's a lot of emotional shame that surrounds money and personal finances, investing, as well as a lot of other emotions, you know, wrapped up. Is there anything that as you talk to people or educate them that, and the first thing that pops to mind is almost always it feels like investors, if given the choice, behave poorly when they take on more aggressive risk exposure than less. I rarely hear people say, man, you know what? I really wish I had taken on a lot more a lot more risk. Whatever strategy you end up pursuing, in our experience, the clients that do the least amount of tinkering end up with the best outcomes, which is, which is interesting. You know, that, that's tough for business owners, right? Because business owners typically are in control of their businesses and they want to make changes to their businesses to optimize the outcomes. And if you try to do that with your portfolio, in a very active way, you know, sort of responding to information and making determinations on the basis of that incoming information, you end up oftentimes resulting in, a, you know, producing a worse outcome. And so a lot of our clients that pay the least amount of attention, <laughs> that have the most sort of stable approach, you know, whatever that approach is, whether it's 60-40 or whether it's a more balanced approach or, you know, the key is not to sell low and buy high you know, it's back to the point about emotions, that that is the, that there's a tremendous emotional pull to do that because it's validating for whatever your belief is around what's working and not. But actually, if you can just stick with an investment plan and be disciplined and rebalance on a regular basis and really focus on the things you can control, which is identifying things that are reliably different, incorporating them in a way that is prudent into a portfolio and diversifying as much as you can and just sticking to that plan through time, even in times when it's tough, that is generally the formula to the best long-term success in investing. It doesn't sound very sexy, and it's certainly not what you hear about on CNBC, where I think a lot of people get their investment information, but it actually is, I think, the secret to producing the best long-term outcomes. The other thing that I think is, has been helpful is trying to be as transparent with clients as possible. So oftentimes I'll tell them, ideally your portfolio should look like this, but we're not going to go all the way there. And it's because you, you, you may not be able to handle it. It's kind of like uh, a few good men. You can't handle the truth, if you remember that. And so they'll say, well, what do you mean I can't handle it? Well, it's because there's going to be periods where certain assets are going to do poorly relative to whatever your reference point is. For most people, it's a stock market. And on a relative basis, it'll look like it's underperforming and you're going to want to sell it. And then you don't benefit from the strategy if you do that. So we're going to test to see how, how you respond as the environment plays out. And they'll say, well, of course I can handle it. And it almost becomes a challenge. And so we kind of putting it out there in terms of, in our experience, clients have a hard time with this because 
they're, you know, something is zigging when they think it should be zagging. And we just want to see how you respond to that. And then if you pass that test, then we'll move uh, closer to what we think is a more optimal mix. So that opens up the conversation about how emotion can drive behavior and, and it makes it more obvious to them that they may be susceptible to that, at least, you know, the experience that we've had with other clients. Relating back to the point you made about the risk, that's why I think it's important that clients have a risk level that they can tolerate. Because if you experience a significant loss, you're very likely to want to make a change to strategy at the worst possible time. Whatever strategy it is, you know, typically the best returns follow the worst returns. And so if you make the change after the worst returns, then you're likely to go pers- basically pursue something that's been working. And then you sort of invest in that after it's been up a lot. And then that does poorly. And so you're on this hamster wheel. And I even saw it when I worked with institutions, the consultants would always come in They'd run a manager search and they would never recommend a manager that was in the bottom quartile. They'd always recommend managers that were in the top quartile of performance. And lo and behold, after you hire those managers, they'd always be in the bottom quartile or, or, or they'd be significantly worse than they had been prior to getting hired. And actually the best strategy is to find the managers you think are really smart and really great who have just gone through a terrible outcome and hire those managers. And that's just very hard emotionally to do. But I, I kind of on your point, I think if you can develop an investment strategy that produces your desired outcome with the least amount of risk, you're most likely to stick with it in the bad outcomes. So because your losses won't be so great that they're intolerable and will force you emotionally to make a decision to change course. So that's why I think you could say, well, I'm an investor for the long term. I just want to take the most amount of risk so I can generate the highest return. And in reality, most people can't survive the trough. They can't hold through the trough because they see a third or half of their life savings evaporate and they're going to want to make a decision because you know it's it's very reasonable response to that outcome. If you can produce something that never has that type of a loss experience because it's better constructed up front, then you're much more likely to hold through the trough. So that's another aspect that's been our experience. And this is an intersection of a lot of topics we've already covered, which is when you go through a drawdown, Looking backwards, the numbers look terrible. Most people make you know, forward-looking decisions based on you know, recent performance. So the emotion there is, I need to sell. Then at the same time, the outlook for whatever that is, whether it's a market or a manager, is going to look really bad. And so you're thinking that bad performance is going to continue. And so that's forcing you to sell. And all of that in an environment where most likely it's probably the best time to buy. And, and we all understand, you know, buy low, sell high, but your emotions force you to buy high and sell low. And those emotions are at a peak, most likely during that right before that inflection point. And, and so those are things that just drive behavior and constantly cause investors to shoot themselves in the foot. I used to have this conversation a lot. You know, I sold everything in 2009. I didn't invest. I didn't get back in. So... 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, you know, heard this all the time. It's really sad, but they say, okay, or I'm ready to get back in or, hey, I just sold a business. Let's use a more optimistic scenario. Just sold a business. But what do I do? Do I put it all in today? You know, that feels very scary to me. And I say, look, the the optimal slash correct answer is, yeah, like statistically speaking, you probably put it all in today. But psychologically, hey, you want to put in, scale in over the course of a year, every quarter, two years, like, fine you know like because the hindsight bias of oh my god i can't believe i didn't wait three months or look how much better it would have been had i done this is a lot more painful than you know the the average of the possible outcomes and 
you know, 10, 20 years from now, it's not going to matter. But for your short-term mental health, if you blow up your investing plan because of that hindsight bias, it, it will matter. Yeah, especially if it causes another reaction to that bad experience. But, but also that question, what I found is most people think about getting in or getting out is, is the stock market. That's how they're thinking about it. And that's a volatile ride. So your timing actually matters a lot. And, and obviously you don't know if it's a good time or a bad time. But if your portfolio is much more stable than, than the stock market and has a lot less volatility, you know, less likely to have a bad decade, less likely to have a you know, 40 or 50% drawdown, then your timing matters less because you're not jumping on a volatile ride. We're now having one of the worst years ever for 60-40. So traditional portfolio, stocks, bonds, and oddly kind of coming into this, I tweeted about this uh, the other day. I said, you know, if you were to come into this year, Alex and I were on a panel. I can't remember when it was. It was maybe first quarter. But had we been on a panel last year and I said, okay, I got a crystal ball and I'm going to tell everyone that this is going to be the worst year ever for traditional portfolios. It doesn't feel like people are freaking out that much, at least to me, at least people I talked to, or I predicted it'd be a lot worse. What's the vibe like? Y'all's phones ringing off the hook? What's what's going on? You give me a little uh, insight onto what this year feels like so far? You know, what's interesting about this year is if you came into the year and said, you know, I'm really concerned about the markets, I'm going to be very conservative, I'm putting my money 100% in fixed income, you'd be down 15%. Okay. And you know the worst year prior to this year was minus three. So you're five x the worst year. So I think part of the reason that you're not we're not seeing, and I don't think generally you don't have people panicking, is because what could they have done? Nobody wanted to hold cash earning zero. If they were all in bonds, they'd be down fifteen percent. Uh, so I think that's part of it. There's no uh, envy or your neighbor like it's like everybody just got kind of smashed. I think there's an element of shell shock too after like coronavirus, everything going on, last couple of people, people were just like, whatever. I just like, yeah, I think, I think that's part of it. Another part of it is there is actually good news. You know, bond yields are the highest they've been in like 15 years. So prospectively, you can actually earn something. You can hold by T-bills and get 4%, right? That, that hasn't existed for a long time. So if your target return was, let's say, 6 to 8% a year ago, that was a lot harder to achieve long-term versus now when you can get four plus percent from cash. So now you can, as long as you survive that transition from low rates to more normal rates, your long-term expected return has actually gone up. So I think there is some good news in what's happened. And then the third thing is, my sense is people respond to the bad news they hear in the news and you know an economic downturn and things like that. We haven't, nothing's really even happened yet. The only thing that's happened this year, the big surprise has been, you know, rapidly rising interest rates. The economy seems to be doing fine. Inflation's higher than you know most people feel comfortable, but there's nothing crazy happening. So I think that's that's largely uh, why you haven't had a you know big negative shock so far. Yeah, and, and stock markets have generally held in much better than I would have expected. You know, if, if we were all sitting around at the end of last year and said, "Hey, in Q4, inflation's going to be running at nine, and the Fed's going to be on their way to five, you know, at four percent." You know interest rates. I think all of us would have said the stock market would be down more than you know fifteen percent, which is kind of extraordinary. So you haven't really experienced the degree of pain that I think is possible in the stock markets, and so that I think also influences the mood. I think there's still a hope, which I think is low probability, but a hope for a soft landing. 
that the Fed can engineer a slowdown in inflation without a vicious recession. But it, our, our view is you're likely to see a pretty significant fall in growth and fall in earnings and that that hasn't yet been discounted in stock markets. And so most of the pain's been felt in the bond markets. But you know, as Alex said, I think the bond market pain, even though it's been awful this year, and I think a lot of people have been surprised by it, it's a little easier to tolerate because prospectively you're getting a lot higher interest rates. I was just talking to a core bond manager the other day and they said their current yield is 6%. You know, it's like, that's, a, that's a extraordinary. If you think about the last several years, we've been getting, you know, one to 2% from core bond managers. So I think there's a little bit more of a tolerance around that in bond markets, but, but the pain likely is to come in our view in the stock markets. And that's when I think you're going to get the real panic. Yeah. We like to say like glass half full, half empty on sort of the fixed income landscape. I say, you know, the good news is you've reset to this like much higher income level, which is great from a yield perspective, but also from a potential capital gains reversal if things interest rates come back down. All right. So we've talked a lot about 60-40 traditional, all sorts of stuff so far, but that's not what you guys do, right? Traditional 60-40 is not your bag. So let's... uh. Let's open the kimono. What, um, how do you guys think about portfolios in general, and and how do we uh, put the pieces uh, put the pieces together? I mean, to us, the most important thing is managing risk. I feel like we're in the risk management business, and risk is one of those things where you don't really think about it until something bad really happens, and then all of a sudden, it's the most important thing. It's kind of like your health, right? Your health is always priority number one, but you know, oftentimes you don't even think about it until something bad happens. And then all of a sudden it becomes priority number one again. So I, th I feel like one of our responsibilities is to always be thinking about risk and the things that can go wrong rather than just jumping on the ride and, you know, going up, up and down with, with, along with everybody else. So when we think about it that way, you know, to build a diversified portfolio, you just need a bunch of different return streams that are individually attractive, but reliably diverse to one another. And if you can do that, you can effectively get an attractive return, just like you would if you were to invest in a single risky asset class without taking the risk. And then think of risk in three components. There's most importantly, risk of catastrophic loss. You can't do that. And if you're over-concentrated, that's how you take that, that risk. Think about the Japanese stock market. It's still down from its high 30 years ago, right? The US stock market in the last 50 years has had two lost decades. In the 2000s, it was negative for 10 years, and in the 70s, it underperformed cash for a decade. So the risk is not low. So avoid catastrophic loss, and you do that by just being less concentrated. Number two is minimize the, the risk of lost decade. I mentioned you know, the U.S. stocks have had two out of the last five. So, so taking a bad year and then recovering is more tolerable than doing poorly for 10 years. That's really hard to come back from. And then finally, there's volatility. So try to minimize the volatility uh, for that same return. And you do that by just being diversified across, you know, individually attractive return streams that are diverse. So what does that mean? You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of opportunity set in the U.S., it's U.S. stocks. So when they think opportunity set in different return streams, they're thinking, is it S&P or is it Dow or is it the Qs? And if it's bonds, is it the ag or is it 10-year? Or maybe if they go a little crazy, munis. But it's like a grocery store. It's like going to Costco. It's a world of choice. What do you guys consider to be the main ingredients? Those are two of the ingredients, but there are a lot more that you can use to build your menu. 
And as Alex said, you know, really the goal is to find lots of individually attractive return streams that are reliably different. So within the public markets, you can expand into things like inflation hedges, which are important because stocks and bonds do very poorly. Traditional bonds, fixed fixed rate debt does very poorly in a rising inflation environment and even worse in a stagflationary, stagflationary environment, which would, which would be accompanied by weaker growth. So the 70s was an awful time to own a 60-40 portfolio. So you'd want inflation hedges, which would do much better in that type of environment. That could be commodity exposure. It could be inflation index bonds, which we actually think is probably the most attractive asset out there today uh, with you know real yields north of 1.5%. So they're paying you 1.5% plus realized inflation. You know that Those are government guaranteed securities that are paying you probably high single digit returns. That's pretty good. It's like a high yield bond without credit risk. Yeah, yeah. Where you can envision a lot of scenarios where you know you could do very well. So um, that's in the public markets. Now you're pretty limited in the public markets, frankly, in terms of buy and hold strategies. So you can also incorporate really high quality active management or alternative betas. Um, so things that are more uncorrelated return streams. Uh, you know these could include different types of hedge fund strategies where the managers are market neutral over time or fully hedged. There are a number of different types of strategies that would fall into that category, equity market neutral, you know, uh, certain types of long short credit, you know, could be trend following or things that are kind of almost like alternative betas. There's all different types of strategies where I think you can make money in an uncorrelated fashion to being long risk premia. So we'd want to incorporate those in a thoughtful way where you build in a diversity of strategies and you have high conviction in the individual managers or the strategies. And then the third category would be private markets. And in the private markets, there are all sorts of return streams you can access. You can oftentimes access them with a high component of active management because these are just inherently less efficient markets. Think about an apartment building and how the average apartment building is managed versus the very best managed apartment building. You know, there's a lot of NOI accumulation or net operating income accumulation from just being conscious of your costs and making sure you're turning over your apartments and making sure you're leasing, you know, in the best possible way. And so that's alpha in our view, and that you can ex- apply that to private equity, private credit, all different types of private markets. And so in those categories, in the private markets, you can access things that are truly uncorrelated as well. Things like healthcare royalties, life settlements, uh, litigation, finance, all sorts of things that then can further augment the number of ingredients in your cake that you're baking when you're thinking about baking that portfolio. And the more you can layer in of things you can be confident in that are reliably different, that perform differently in different environments, the better your overall portfolio outcome is going to be, the more stable that's going to be, and the lower your risk is going to be. And that's really what we seek to achieve for our clients. So that's a lot. Alex, I was just reflecting, you know, I I read your book, it's almost a decade ago now, Balanced Asset Allocation. And um, how do you as a chef, portfolio chef, how do you start to think about, this for both of you guys, the menu, meaning like, all right, you just name like 20 things that could go into a portfolio. And on one hand, you have this sort of long only beta exposures, right? So stocks, bonds, real assets, et cetera. And then you have this kind of bucket of other where it's active or, or return streams that are probably not as easily accessed through ETFs or something. How do you kind of walk down that path of deciding, you know, what goes into the actual recipe from this like limitless, I mean, there's tens of thousands of funds out there menu. Is that a daily constant iteration? Is it something you kind of 
review once a year? And, and how have you come to the final recipe that you've settled on uh, to date? This might be a really long answer. So that's a career long endeavor because the, the way the way we think about it is you're constantly trying to uncover new return streams, new gems. And simplistically, the way you can think about it is you have equities to us. That's one. Okay. There's a lot of flavors of equities, but for the most part, they go up and down together. So that's one. So if you have 10 different equity strategies, that's really like one strategy. The one return stream. Which, by the way, you, you mentioned tens of thousands of funds. The vast majority of those yeah. funds are doing very similar things. And so they more or less move up and down together. Yeah. I mean, the, the good example, we use the phrase mutual fund salad, but and I'm sure you guys see so many portfolios that come to you and they're like, I'm diversified. I have these 10 mutual funds. And then you look at them and it's large cap growth, large cap value, small cap growth, small cap value, mid cap growth, mid cap value. I'm like, congratulations, you just bought the S&P or Wilshire 5000. And so, but that's not what you guys are talking about, right? When you when you put together this menu, that's like one entry, which is just stocks. That's right. Now you can make it more diversified, but you got to understand what you think about your building exposures. Each of these return streams, it's like a it's like a package that you buy and it has it gives you certain exposures. And for the most part, you can think of it as what's the exposure to growth? What's the exposure to inflation? Those are the two big drivers of, of at least asset class returns and you know how growth uh, plays out versus what was discounted, how inflation plays out versus what, what was discounted. Think of it as the big surprises. That's what moves markets. So in the 1970s, the big surprise was inflation was higher for longer than anybody thought. So that's bad for stocks and bonds, or they both underperform cash. That's very that cause effect rela relationship, that linkage is very reliable and predictable. But you don't know what's going to happen in the in the economic environment. So you want to be diversified based on that. So so think of stocks as one bucket. You can think of bonds as another bucket. What's interesting about bonds is is that the sharp ratio of bonds is about the same as it is for stocks. So most people, when they're shopping in the, in the grocery store, they see low risk, low return bonds, high risk, high return stocks. And that's their main menu that they're choosing from. So they calibrate how much risk and return they want by going, you know, allocating between those two asset classes. And what ends up happening is that's a very poor menu to choose from because the more return you want, the more concentrated your portfolio becomes. And you violate that first principle that I described of you become over-concentrated. Now your risk of catastrophic loss is too high. The risk of a lost decade is too high. That's just a very bad framework. So because those two have the similar sharp ratio, meaning same re return per unit of risk, all you have to do is adjust the risk and you get a similar expected return as equities. So one of the numbers that I throw out there that really surprises even investment professionals is if you go back 100 years, and let's say you have two choices. You can invest in stocks or you can buy treasuries. Which one would you choose? And you were holding it for 100 years. And you know, 100 out of 100 would say stocks beat bonds. But those two have about the same sharp ratio. All you have to do is hold bonds at about the same risk as stocks. And over 100 years, they have about the same return and risk. And so now if your menu isn't you know, high risk, high return stocks, low risk, low return bonds, instead it's high risk, high return stocks, high risk, high return bonds, that is a much better menu option. You can do the same thing with things like inflation hedge assets like commodities or gold. You know, gold has underperformed equities by about a percent over 50 years and has about a zero correlation. 
And that's basically when we came off the gold standard in 1971. That's a pretty attractive asset class. It's diverse and its return over 50 years has been just, you know, barely shy of equities. Inflation-linked bonds, they've only been around 20 plus years, but in the 1970s, they probably would have done really well. They tend to do best in a stagflationary environment. So there's actually a lot of good options within public markets that are heavily underutilized because most people think in that 60-40 you know, framework that I described. So just changing the way you think about these things gives you the opportunity to get really well diversified within public markets. Some people term that a risk parity uh, framework, but that is a lot more robust than, than the traditional framework. And I think in a period where the risk of you know, prolonged inflation or weak growth uh, is more present, the benefits of that will come through a lot more than, let's say, in the last 10 years when all you have to do is buy equities. The comment you made, I think, is such a critical insight because it's hard to see the world the same afterwards, which is you don't have to accept assets prepackaged the way they're offered to you. And what I mean by that, so you talk about stocks versus bonds and stocks historically, I don't know, 18% volatility, bonds a lot less. But you got to remember, stocks on average, these companies have debt, yada, yada. So theoretically, you know, you could say, well, instead of accepting the S&P 500, 100% of my portfolio, maybe I'm, I like stocks, but maybe I'm 60% stocks and 40% cash. And you alter that sort of stock sort of path. It looks different. And same thing with bonds. Like you don't have to accept bonds at a 10 ball or whatever they are. And you can lever them up. And so once you start to think like that, it changes the menu to not just, hey, here's your three choices, but hey, there's sort of infinite choice on how you put these together. And it becomes much more of a question of correlations and opportunity. So, and maybe this is a Damien question, but as you look at the main offering of what people have, so let's say they're crazy and they actually have global stocks, global stocks, bonds, of the buy and hold sort of beta exposure, what are the things that people are really, are the big muscle movements you think are important? Is it gold tips, commodities, REITs? What, like, what, are the, what are the big things that you think make the difference? I think you mentioned the main ones, which is, inf- I think the biggest gap we see in client portfolios today on the public market side, on the buy and hold, you know, capture public market risk premium side is inflation hedges. Investors are just not prepared for it because we haven't worried about inflation for so long. You know, it's been decades uh, since inflation's been a real concern until the last few months. And so you're starting to see a little bit of an inching towards more inflation hedges. But we're amazed, for instance, that investors wouldn't want to hold more inflation index bonds relative to fixed rate debt today. Like I said, if you look at it on a just a yield perspective, it's offering higher yield than high yield. <laughs> And it's got this really unique characteristic of basically paying you inflation plus a premium, which is quite attractive. So there are these portfolio tools that are not complicated. You can access them in a very low cost fashion by either buying the securities directly or buying uh, any number of ETF or, or mutual fund strategies that hold these things at you know for virtually nothing. You know, you can. I think there's a Schwab fund that's five basis points. You know, so where you can just buy the tips market. And so that's something we would encourage investors to really think about today. It can be a really helpful diversifier for portfolios. Same, I would say, for commodities. You know, for a long time, commodities, I think, were kind of the dog in client portfolios. We, we took a lot of uh, heat from clients for having them in our client portfolios for a number of years. You know, it was a, 
it was a lonely road <laughs> to walk down to have commodities in your client portfolios. Um, but I think they they serve a very valuable role, and in particular in these types of inflationary environments. And you know, commodities have actually been one of the only things that are up this year. Gold is another one. I kind of think about that differently. So commodities, when I say commodities, I'm thinking more about industrial commodities, the things that sort of feed the the growth engine. Gold is really a currency. And so you can think of that as, you know, you have paper currencies like the dollar and the euro and the yen, and then you have gold, which is the world's oldest currency. And the supply, unlike the supply of paper currencies, cannot be manipulated in the same way. So there's a finite amount of gold. And so uh, this year, it's not surprising that gold's done poorly. And actually, it's only done poorly in dollar terms. If you're a, a, a Japanese investor, a European investor, a, you know, a, a UK investor, you actually, gold is up. So gold's actually, you know, I think done surprisingly well in an environment that should be terrible for gold this year. And the main challenge with gold, of course, is that it, it is a currency that pays you zero and you're in an environment of tightening dollar liquidity, which means the supply of dollars is shrinking and the rate of, of yield on, on uh, dollars is increasing at the fastest clip ever in a hundred years. And so that is an environment where you'd expect a currency like gold to do poorly relative to dollars. And in fact, that's been the case, but actually gold is held in there pretty well because you have a lot of savers in the world that are viewing that as an attractive way to save assets for the long term. And we do think over a longer term timeframe, it is something that can be a, an important part of preserving wealth. It is one of those currencies that cannot be manipulated in the same way that the paper currencies can. And we think eventually you'll get to a point where that growth inflation trade-off is such that central banks will stimulate again. And when they stimulate, they're going to print dollars, they're going to print euro and yen. And and that is, I guess, I guess the Japanese are still printing yen, but they're going to print these currencies and you're going to see gold most likely go up a lot in that, in that type of environment. And so it's a really valuable diversifier in that sense. We think about it as a hedge to monetary inflation, the, the, the debasement of paper currencies. Um, and so those are those are the ones that you mentioned that we would focus most on. REITs, I think there is some value, but the public REITs tend to trade very, in a very correlated fashion with stocks. And so we don't see as much diversification benefit there. And there's also, I think, within real estate, there's obviously the benefit on the top line in terms of your rent growth being strong in inflationary environments. But financing rates are also going up a lot as a function of the inflation, which is I think a headwind for real estate markets generally. So you've seen, you've seen cap rates expanding. And so that, that also, it, it's not as clear of a hedge to, to different inflationary outcomes that, that the other assets that I mentioned would be. I know this is time varying. So the answer is depends on what's currently doing t terrible and what's performing well. Like you said, it's, it'd be different to have this conversation about commodities a year or two ago than today. What pushback do you guys traditionally get the most about when it's the non-traditional long-only assets of those? Is it gold? What's the vibe? You know, the the story with gold that, that we share with clients is it's part of your catastrophe insurance. It's like one of those assets that you don't necessarily want it to do well, because that means it's a probably a bad environment. And you have, it's kind of like fire insurance on your house. You hope you never use it, but you got to have it because it protects you against that catastrophe. So think about the 1970s, gold was up 30% a year. That would have been a great time to have that asset. And then in the 80s and 90s, when you didn't need that catastrophe insurance, gold was negative for 20 years. So, but it is part of that diversified portfolio. So gold has a, has a decent story attached to it. I'd say probably the hardest one is treasuries. 
And people look at that and say, this is a dead asset. It, that's less an issue now because the yields are at 15-year highs. But the way to think about treasuries, especially long-term treasuries, which, are, which have gotten killed this year, um, but the way to think about it is it's another, you can think of it as a, it's not really catastrophe insurance, but it's more about a recession insurance or downside growth insurance. And that's really a big part of a balanced portfolio, especially those portfolios that are overly allocated to equities. They're taking a lot of growth risk. And if growth surprises to the downside, which it often does, and that, that may be the next big surprise we get here in the U.S., you want something that goes up enough to offset the downside that you get in that volatile asset of, you know, that we call equities. But that's the one that we probably get the most pushback on. Uh, even though it's treasuries, these are government-guaranteed securities, it's a hard thing to own, especially longer duration, uh, because people don't associate government-guaranteed safety with you know, vol high volatility. It's also hard in this environment when you can get 4.5% yield on a one-year T-bill to want to invest in 30-year treasuries that are yielding just north of 4 or 4%. I've never in my career had so many clients call me and say, eh, just let's buy T-bills. You know, that, that sounds good. You know, so that that's a new thing. You know, we've never, <laughs> I, don't, I don't normally have that request until this year. I think there is another important aspect to incorporating these diversifiers into a portfolio that relates to structure. And uh, this isn't as exciting as talking about what's likely to happen to these things, but I think it's critical for investors to think about how do you access these things in a low cost, efficient, tax efficient way. And I think you know you have certainly built your business around taking advantage of these things. We are also in the creation of an ETF taking advantage of these things. But there is this inefficiency that exists for most investors, you know, particularly taxable investors, when they're going out and they're accessing these multi-asset class portfolios in a mutual fund structure or on a bespoke basis, in the act of rebalancing, they're having to realize gains. And when you wrap these multi-asset portfolios into an ETF structure, you can defer the gains. And that is a really powerful compounding benefit where you can basically wait to pay the, you know, the realization of the gain, pay the tax associated with the realization of the gains for when you actually exit the, the ETF. That is a really powerful underutilized technology, frankly, that exists, you know, you look at iShares or Vanguard or most of the vast majority of the ETFs they have are, you know, very narrowly defined, you know, cloud computing or US stocks or large cap stocks, et cetera. And you don't get much benefit of diversification across the underlying components. And so there's not that much of a rebalancing benefit there. But when you put together reliably diverse return streams that are volatile in a package, in an ETF package, you actually can rebalance across the components and generate a higher return than the underlying components would offer you, which is interesting. It's an interesting portfolio benefit. And you can avoid having to pay those capital gains taxes that so many investors are going to be experiencing in their portfolios as they normally rebalance those portfolios. So that is a really powerful concept that has to do with just being thoughtful around structure. So it's not just identifying the right things to hold, but it's then structuring those in a thoughtful way. And that is, I think, something that ETFs offer that is just generally underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, look, we talk ad nauseum on this podcast and elsewhere about portfolios and construction and all this stuff, which is, of course, important. But we say, you know, investors always overlook the really big things that matter often. Um, ETF structure on average, and we've been saying this a long time, there's nothing necessarily unique about the ETF structure that guarantees a lower cost. But on average, there are a lot lower costs 
because it's um, part of that is it's devoid of all the legacy conflicts of interest and fees that are associated with mutual funds, 12B1 platforms, mutual fund supermarkets, on and on and on. So the average ETF is like 75 basis points cheaper than the average mutual fund. And then the tax implications, our ballpark estimate for strategies with decent turnover is an annual benefit of around 70 basis points, which is significant, right? So you add those two together. And right there, just because of the structure alone, you're talking about 150 basis points on average. And so we always tell investors, like your base case is ETF, and you need to come up with a reason for it not to be an ETF. And it's not true for everything, of course. Um, but for the starting point, it should always be ETF. That conversation here in 2022, I'm happy to report, is a lot more well understood than 5, 10, 15 years ago, you know, 15 years ago, people were like, EFT, what's that? But now I think it's starting to to make its way into the vernacular. And you're really seeing the dam break with a lot of the mutual fund to ETF conversions, which I always thought ETFs would overtake mutual funds. But this year is, is that's the biggie. I'm guessing this year, people are going to be shocked at the realization of capital gains in their mutual funds. Because you've had one, you've had a lot of sort of people exiting. Two, you've had a lot of these positions that mutual fund managers have been holding for many years that they're now rotating because you're in this dramatically different environment. So I think even though a lot of these mutual funds are down a lot, they're going to be distributing gains this year, which you know probably is a good opportunity for somebody who's been sitting in something for a while. You're going to get a big capital gains distribution. You can sell before that, you know, to avoid that capital gains distribution and maybe move into something that is more tax efficient. I'm going to re-say that again, just so investors can get this. But if you own a mutual fund and you may, you're probably down 20, 30% this year, no matter what you're in. We looked it up the other day and it's like 90, 95% of funds are down this year if you exclude leveraged and inverse funds. So you're probably down. So don't feel bad. But what's worse than being down is getting a fat tax bill on top of it. Like it's the most preposterous situation. It's just like a giant, pardon my technical term, but kicking the nuts twice. And so if ever, like we always say the the money leaves these high fee tax inefficient funds, there's so much inertia in our world. So money stays put, but divorce, death, bear markets, and then fat tax distribution. This is my favorite time of year to retweet all these <laughs> that Morningstar puts out, all these mutual funds that have these huge tax bills. Oh, man. I, but I don't think you ever go back. Like that happens to you once and you're like, oh my God, what am I thinking? One of the biggest lessons that I've learned, you know, doing this for a long time is investors, even professional investors are overconfident in so many things. And one of those is their ability to predict the future. And so that you always hear these prognostications of, of this is what I think is going to happen, therefore you should buy this. And they're going to be wrong a lot. And the thing that they probably undervalue the most are these structural efficiencies that are highly reliable. So, so, that, so like all the resources and energy go towards predicting what's going to happen next with low hit rates, as opposed to spending time and, and thought in how do I build this structure? You can think of it as structural alpha understanding there's tax advantages here. I'll take that. You know, th that is guaranteed, you know, excess returns. I, I, I need to bank that. Diversification, we think, is one of those things where you basically get, you know, a higher sharp ratio by being more diversified and you can manage what that risk level is. To, to us, that's much more reliable than predicting what's going to happen next. So you wrap all this stuff together 
and you bring it to where we are today and you look forward, the economic volatility that we're experiencing is probably the highest that any of us have seen in our careers. And for many, many years, for probably 30 years, inflation hasn't really moved very much. And now it's as volatile as it's been in you know, 40, 50 years ago. And so where the environment goes next in terms of growth and inflation, both are highly unstable. For a long time, inflation was stable, growth was a little bit more volatile. Now they're both volatile. The range of outcomes is wider than we've probably ever seen uh, you know, in the last 40, 50 years. And people are probably less diversified now than they certainly should be. And so there's, there's more guessing now. The odds of being wrong is probably higher than normal. And there's less taking advantage of these, these clear you know, structural alpha uh, options that are available. So that, that's a, there's a huge, huge mismatch there. And I'm concerned that people are going to learn those lessons the hard way. And part of it is just the tax discussion that we just had later this year. But I think part of it is also going to be how the environment plays out and, and these big surprises that are coming up next and the lack of diversification in portfolios that it's going to, you know, all that is going to surface. Yeah, we like to say it better to be Rip Van Winkle than Nostradamus, which is seemingly what everyone wants to do all day. I imagine you get this question less now than a year or two ago. What's the framework? Do you guys incorporate any crypto assets uh, yet? Or is it something you keep an eye on? Or is that a hard no? You know, it's so funny. We get that question whenever it goes up 100%. And we don't get the question when it drops 50%. So this is the second or third round of that. So, you know, a year ago, a lot of questions about crypto. Now, not a single person is asking. And our response, so we don't have that. Uh, and our response has always been, it's more of a speculative asset. Maybe somewhere down the line, it becomes more institutionally owned, more established, less you know, risk on, risk off type of trade and more like a currency and maybe it's like a digital gold, but, but it doesn't feel like we're really there yet. And the other aspect of it that I personally just have a hard time is I get concerned when something has the risk of going to zero, either because it's regulated away or it gets replaced. And if there's a risk of going to zero, that's just, it doesn't fit into a model well because you don't know what the risk of zero is. If there is a risk of zero, that just that raises another, you know, concern about catastrophic loss and all those things. You guys talked a little bit earlier about sort of like it's like your standard menu at the restaurant, and then like here's your specials or here's the alt menu. Once you move beyond sort of the standard offerings of of long only, which um, and you can correct me, this tends to be kind of more like the ETF structure. But once you kind of move into some of these dozen other ideas that diver help diversify as well, I'd love to hear a little bit of the framework for how you assess, you know, these strategies, because it's I, I think it requires a, a fair amount of, of homework and due diligence. And then also what's kind of like the client response to that? Do they tend to want something that's like simpler? Look, I want this ETF. It, I kind of understand it or like, no, actually... I want the full the full menu with the varied ingredients. Well, I guess the answer to your second question is that it depends on the client. So some clients want something that's simple, more public oriented, highly liquid, low cost. And then some clients, I'd say probably the majority of our clients want to access some element of the alternatives that we've identified and make available on our platform. And the simple reason is that those things are really valuable as diversifiers. And so they help us build a better portfolio for clients. And they're hard to access, as you alluded to, for clients on their own, You know, whether because there are high minimums or the strategies are closed, or they're just hard to understand. 
we can do the diligence on our side. So we have a whole group and I, I lead that group um, where we evaluate these strategies and we get to know these managers usually over the course of years, because unlike trusting that there's a risk premium in stocks or risk premium in bonds, you know, this is a leap of faith. You're trusting that this manager can generate alpha or active management return. And there's no guarantee of that. You know, it's a zero sum game. So you have to be really confident in the edge that the manager has in the culture that they've built in the integrity of the people making the decisions that are stewards of your client capital. So it takes a long time to build that trust and to build that understanding and to see that edge and be confident in that edge. And so, uh, and then thinking about how it would fit into a broader portfolio. So we go through this process constantly evaluating new opportunities, new strategies, evaluating existing strategies to make sure that the, that it's con that they're continuing to perform as expected. And you could think of it as a menu that we then can provide to clients where they can select these things. And we would help guide them in that process of figuring out what's the right fit for them. And it comes back to those three categories. You've got the public markets, which, as you said, the goal there is diversify and keep costs and taxes low. Then you have what we call them hedge funds that hedge. So these are strategies that are lowly correlated, high component of active skill, managers that we have high conviction in that we've known sometimes decades. And we provide a means to access those. So for our really large clients, you know, multi-billion dollar clients, they can access them on a direct basis. But for most of our clients, we actually create a vehicle to access these managers in a diversified way. And many of these managers are closed or just frankly inaccessible to retail investors. So it is a very compelling offering. And the outcome of combining those managers in a diversified way is you get something that we think you know, generates a risk level that's more like bonds, but with a potential return level that's more like stocks in an uncorrelated fashion or a very lowly correlated fashion from the public markets. That's a really valuable diversifier and something that, you know, is really unique. And then we have a third category, which are these private strategies. And that is, you know, frankly, where I spend most of my time because you have to underwrite every single fund offering. And, you know, they're mostly these drawdown vehicles where it's private equity style, you get the capital committed and called over the course of three to five years, and then it's invested. And then as they exit the positions, the clients get the capital back. And so at any point in time, you'll look at our menu of offerings there, and you might see, you know, 10 to 15 different options to access across private equity, credit, real estate, some uncorrelated categories as well. And that's basically you know, a seasonal menu based on what we think is compelling, what managers we have confidence in, you know, when they're open and raising capital. And we continually try to build that out so that there are more and more strategies on offer where we have conviction in the underlying asset class, you know, in the different verticals, and where we think the manager that we've hired or accessed is you know, best in class or you know, one of the best in that space. And then the other thing that we do is we use our platform scale because you know we manage over $20 billion. We're the size of a large college endowment. We can really negotiate fees and terms to the benefit of our clients. So unlike one of the large broker-dealer platforms, the banks, where they add all these extra fees to access the alternatives, we actually provide access to those alternatives, usually with a discounted fee structure, and that all gets passed along to our clients. And then any benefits we can we can uh, achieve through our scale, you know, both with regards to access and a lower fees that gets passed on to our clients. So that's, you know, I think a, for a lot of our clients is a really compelling offering. It actually builds upon itself. So a lot of our clients are asset managers who 
while they're really good, you know, at what they do, they don't have the time or the bandwidth or, you know, frankly, are able to access a lot of these strategies in these other verticals. And so they utilize us as a way to gain access to those other really compelling alternatives and return streams and help them think about the overall portfolio structure. And then they can be a resource for us. So they can help us uncover things or diligence things, or, you know, nobody's going to understand these things as well as somebody who's lived and breathed it for their entire careers. So we're evaluating a new multifamily manager. We could talk to our multifamily clients and say, do you know this person? Have you done business with this person? And so that's really, I think, an integral part of our value add and the access and the diligence that we can provide. And it's sort of, it's self-reinforcingly positive in terms of, you know, the more really smart, really exceptional clients we can have, the more we can access these really great strategies for our clients and be able to evaluate them in an appropriate way. And Meb, if we zoom out a little bit, as co-CIOs, one of our big decision points, and I think a lot of investors face this, is how do you allocate your time and your resources? And when we look at those three categories of public markets, you know, hedge funds at hedge and private markets, we tend to allocate less to public markets and more to those other two. And the reason is those other two are, in, frankly, more easier to underwrite because you're kind of underwriting, almost underwriting like a business. And there's more opportunity there to add value. In public markets, if you go back 50 years ago, maybe there was more opportunity to add value. Now you're competing with computers, millions of investors. It's creating alpha is just really hard in that space. Over there, structural alpha is more reliable, like, like we talked about. So figure out ways to do that really well and then reallocate your resources in those other areas, private markets and hedge funds, where your due diligence and your underwriting can actually add value. And at the same time, you become more diversified doing it that way. So I think a lot of this is just reorienting the way you think about constructing a portfolio. And most people spend all their time in public markets trying to uncover the next manager. They hire them after they have a five-year good run. They fire them after they underperform, and they repeat that process. I would love to hear... And you can't, I'm not holding you to it. It doesn't have to be your favorite because these are all interesting. But like of those strategies, which ones really speak to you guys as including in this mix to, you know, diversify a traditional portfolio? And I know there's a lot of descriptions, but are there any that like really like, you know what, I got a soft spot for airplane lease finance, whatever it is. Anything that uh, comes to mind? The way to think about it is, what is diverse to, you know, so you mentioned our part, so risk parity, so that's stocks, you know, treasuries, commodities, and tips. So the question is, what's diverse to that? What can give you a, you know, an attractive return that is going to be reliably different from that? And so that's, that fits within those other categories that we described. And more specifically, Damien can give you some answers. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the the major category is that we would, if you came to us blank slate today and say, I got RPAR, what else would you recommend that I invest in? I would throw it into a few general categories. So one would be low correlation, active management strategies, you know, the, the, the hedge fund portfolio that we've built for clients, because that is a pretty liquid exposure. It's It's quarterly liquid. It allows you to, I think, diversify against the one thing you can't really diversify against in public markets, which is a terribly intense tightening, right? So that's, that is one thing, you know, no matter, you can't hide out in any public market. I mean, other than being in cash, but as far as if you're taking risk in public markets, there's nowhere to hide in an aggressive tightening. You know, it is the worst environment for assets generally, but what you can do is you can incorporate high quality active strategies 
low correlation strategies where you're hedged, um, things like global macro or quantitative strategies, et cetera, where they can actually make money in this type of environment by being short some of these asset classes because they can anticipate what's happening or they can take advantage of trends that exist within markets. So that is one category which we see as important, you know, as a semi-liquid exposure, but relatively liquid. And then within the private markets, we would have a meaningful allocation to private real estate. We think it's it's a very important asset class. It's got characteristics that are attractive in, in terms of income. And that income is quite tax efficient in most cases because you can depreciate your assets and shield a lot of that income from taxes. So it's a nice way to fold income into a portfolio that is tax efficient. It's got real asset characteristics. So inflation hedging characteristics because it is a real asset, you own the property. And so real estate, uh, and there's a lot of alpha potential in general. So if you think, like I said earlier, in terms of you know, a great multifamily manager or an industrial real estate developer, et cetera, there are ways to add alpha in that asset class that we think is compelling and reliable. And so when you add that all together, we think it should be a very meaningful allocation for every client. Typically for us, it's, you know, in that 10 to 25% range for clients. And so that's a big piece, the private real estate. And then within the other categories, we really like different types of secured credit oriented strategies. So things where you have underlying high quality collateral, whether it's real estate or um, businesses or hard assets like inventory or equipment or healthcare royalties or any type of underlying collateral, we can get our arms around where the the lending that that that's happening is secured against that collateral at a low loan to value. So you know in a terrible scenario, you're still gonna recover your principles plus penalty, plus interest. And in the meantime, you can generate a nice high return stream, you know, high interest return stream with that collateral protection behind you. That in our view is a really robust return stream. And there's lots of ways to do that. Like I, I mentioned a lot of different types of collateral, but that's something that can hold up in good times and bad and can be a great diversifier for client portfolios and frankly be a lot more compelling than what you see in, in public credit markets. So that's the other category, which we think should be a material exposure in your portfolio to help diversify the public market. So I'd say those probably those three categories would be the things that we would focus on first. You know, there are other compelling things to do in private markets, like for instance, private equity, et cetera, but that's probably more similar to, to things you already own on the public side than the things I mentioned. And then also bringing it back full circle, what are the advantages of the private markets is you don't have that mark to market. And from an emotional standpoint, that dampens the volatility of your total portfolio. And, and we all know there's a lag, but, but that actually makes a big difference because clients feel better about the total portfolio because there's less realized volatility. And that makes it less likely that they're going to react to that downturn. And it gives them you know, more likely. We have a joke. We're just going to wrap our, all of our ETFs <laughs> into a private uh, right. fund and only report on it. Uh, <laughs> Every once in a while. You know, it's funny. That would actually help investors. You can't do that, obviously, but that would that, that's a good thing for investors because it forces them to zoom out a little bit. You know, we're all zoomed in, looking at a day-to-day, you know, reacting to what we hear in the news, connecting that to the performance that we see, and you feel like you have to do something about it. It's like outside of the investment world, everywhere else, you know, Bad performance in the past is a precursor of bad performance in the future, right? When you have an employee and they're underperforming, you don't go to them and say, oh, I'm going to buy low. 
you're going to say, no, I'm going to sell low. I'm, you're out and I'm going to hire a high performer. So everywhere else, it, our intuition has been built around our real life experiences of, of you sell under performers. But in the markets, it's the opposite. So it's very counterintuitive. And you tie in emotion and your real life experiences and it forces you to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. So it's very challenging. Yeah. On the discretionary side, and this is a hard question for me. You know, as you guys look at a lot of these private offerings and fund managers, you know, you mentioned that that you've been investing with for a long time in many cases. And, you know, you said earlier, like, often the best time to be allocating or, or rebalancing to many of these strategies is when they're doing poorly. How do you decide when to finally let them go? Well, a big part of it is you have to look at what did you buy, right? The people, so obviously if the people change, that's that's more obvious. But what, what return stream did you buy and how should it react to different environments? And you have to analyze it through that lens, which is, okay, it, you know, it underperformed. Does it make sense why it underperformed? Did it underperform because of an environment that, that transpired that we should have predicted it would underperform if that had happened? So in other words, you know, you're buying a path, you're buying a, you know, a return stream path, and it, that path will include downturns. Is this downturn understandable? And is that, does that mean that an upturn is coming? Or is there something you know, happening that is beyond what, what you would have expected? So a lot of it is just understanding the context of why it's underperforming and whether that makes sense or not. A related point is that you should never invest in anything that you can't hold through the trough. So every strategy, no matter what it is, will go through periods of underperformance. And if you can't understand when those periods might occur and for what reasons and be convicted in the long-term efficacy of the strategy, even though there will be periods of underperformance, you shouldn't invest in it because you won't hold on and you'll get a bad outcome because every strategy will eventually underperform. And related to that, the odds that that bad period is coming is a lot higher than you realize. And it's because you didn't typically hire them after the bad period. You hired them after a long stretch of a good period. And a bad period is inevitable for every strategy. So when you go in as a buyer, you should already assume a bad period is coming and you need to ask yourself, am I willing do I, to hold on through that trough? And do I understand that's going to be coming soon, regardless of whether the manager believes it or not or expects it? And do I have the conviction to stay the course? Because otherwise, you're going to be on this repeated cycle of you buy an outperforming manager, you're going to fire them into underperforming and you won't get a good return over the long run. You know, we often say, we talk to people and say, um, for portfolio managers, I don't think I've ever heard someone ring me up or email me and say, you know what, Meb, we invested in your fund last year, two years ago, five years ago, whatever it may be. And it's done so much better than expected. We're going to have to fire you, right? But they have said plenty of times, hey, this is doing worse than I thought. We're going to fire you. And the same on the institutional level, right? Like people, if the fund does better, the strategy does better than expected, they ascribe it to their brilliance. Oh, man, I was smart picking that strategy or manager. If it does poorly, it's the manager's fault and, you know, they fire them. And it's a very odd setup because, you know, we did an old post. is like if you have to be an investor, you have to be a good loser because asset classes spends, it's like two-thirds, 70% of the time, in some form of drawdown. Um, it may not be much, maybe a few percent, maybe a lot, but that's kind of the the base case is like you're you're not at an all-time high. Well, ideally, you'd want to be adding. If you're convicted in the strategy, 
you'd want to add to it when it's underperforming. Yeah, part of this, you know, and this much of this is solved by an advisor or having a process, a written process, which no one does, but we we love to ask polls on Twitter and one of them was, you know, do you establish your sell criteria when you make the investment? And it was like 90% say no, you know, or they just buy something and then wing it. And you see why that's a problem. It's it's a problem not just for funds and strategies, but on individual levels for investments because you have an investment that goes down, what are you going to do? But also if you have an investment that does really well, what are you going to do? You know, and that's a good problem to have, but one that's either case winging it, it doesn't seem like a reasonable <laughs> strategy. No, you're more likely to respond to your emotions in that case. As we sort of wind down 2022, what else is on y'all's mind? Anything in particular you guys are thinking about, excited about, worried about, brainstorming about? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm excited about higher yields. I think that's very positive long term. The thing that I'm most concerned about is what the next big surprise is. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it's the surprises that move markets. You know, the only surprise this year has been the Fed tightening more than expected. You know, coming into the year, very little tightening expected. And instead, you got the one of the fastest rates of tightening in history. So that's a big shock. So what we do know is that's going to have some economic impact. It's going to be on a lag. We don't know what the impact is. We don't know how sensitive the economy is to a rapid tightening like this. But when you look at what markets are discounting, it's effectively we're going back to the trend line for growth and inflation by next year. Inflation is going to come down to 2 2 3% or so, and growth is going to be you know reasonable. That's what's discounted. So there's a lot of room for a surprise. And our sense is the big risk to surprise is weaker growth, potentially very weak growth versus what's discounted and uh, higher inflation for longer. And both of those are bad for equities. And that's kind of like the 1970s scenario. If you look at the headlines in the early 70s and you remove the names and the numbers and the dates, it's a lot of similar topics that you're reading about today. And, and so if that repeats, that's bad for 60-40. That's bad for both stocks and bonds. And that's to me, that's one of the biggest concerns. And most portfolios have very little inflation hedges and these other you know, return streams that are diverse. To me, that's like the huge disconnect between the concern that people have about a recession, the concern they have about inflation. Those are the two big topics. If you just scan Google or watch CNBC or you know, read the Wall Street Journal, yet portfolios don't reflect those risks. And, and so I think that's going to play out over the next uh, probably six to 12 months. Yeah, I, I think it's just fascinating watching this tectonic shift in markets as we move to a very different type of inflation and interest rate regime and thinking analytically about what it is that is likely to perform well in that environment, try to incorporate those things into meaningful in meaningful ways into our client portfolios. You know, that's a that's an exciting challenge. And I think one that you know we're better suited for, frankly, than most, because we have access to so many interesting, compelling return streams with really high quality managers. So that's what we're focused on is continuing to build that resilience into client portfolios, focusing on things that can really add value and what's a very challenging market for the traditional stock and bond portfolio, and hopefully differentiate ourselves relative to others so that we can continue to help clients weather this very challenging environment. Yeah. We've held you guys for a long time. Um, I know you want to get back and trade the new Fed announcement and adjust portfolios uh, by the end of the day. But uh, most memorable investment, good, bad, in between, both of you, what's the 
most memorable investment for both? For me, it was going back to 2011. So go back 11 years. And that was the first time we started to put on a long treasury position for our clients. And that was, for those who remember, that was the time when there was concern that the treasury was going to get downgraded, which it, which it was. That was a point when the Fed was going to stop buying bonds. And so everybody was saying, treasuries are going to, you know, interest rates are going to skyrocket, you know, downgrade, and nobody's going to buy these bonds anymore. And so that was, that was a time when we thought, I don't think that's really what's going to happen. If they stop doing that, you'll probably get an economic downturn and rates will probably fall. So we wanted to, we always wanted to move towards a more balanced mix, which includes things like long treasuries for that downside growth. And we saw that as a good opportunity to make that shift. And so we, we went to our clients and, and uh, recommended a you know, long treasury position in a small piece. And they pushed back like, what do you mean? Everybody else is selling this. Literally, everybody else is selling this. And I said, well, first of all, when you hear that, that's when you know it's a good time to buy. So that's number one. Number two, let me walk you through our rationale. And so we started to build this big position in a, in a long treasury Vanguard ETF. And Vanguard even called me and said, you know, we think you may have made a mistake here. This is, you know, of all the funds in our arsenal, internally, we think this is the least attractive. And don't you know everybody's selling treasuries, you know, downgrade, yields are going to skyrocket. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Let me tell you why we're buying it. And what's interesting is that ETF was up 50% in six months. Now, we didn't know that was going to happen. It basically played out as we expected. Can I, get the, can I get the number of your guy at Vanguard so I can uh, Well, he called me back him. and he said, oh, now we understand why you bought this fund. <laughs> so I spent a large chunk of my career at Bridgewater and Bridgewater focuses on public markets. So I think for me, probably you know, one of the most memorable trades or investments that that I engaged in was our you know one of our first private fund allocations, which you know as I after I left Bridgewater, I joined Alex and we started a, a, an RIA together. There was a healthcare royalties manager in New York called Oberlin Capital, and this was for me an eye-opening experience to understand the power of accessing these really unique return streams in the private markets. You know what Oberlin does essentially is they provide financing to biotechs um, or inventors in exchange for the royalty payments on a certain life-saving or standard of care products. So it could be a liver disease treatment or an oncology treatment, and they'll structure it, you know, with debt-like characteristics where they essentially receive an interest payment plus a royalty participation. And you know, there's components of it that you know were highly structured where the underlying collateral these royalty payments were completely uncorrelated from the broader markets they were based on the patent protection and the science and the competitive landscape and all these different characteristics there's certainly risk in that but it's just a completely different set of risks from anything i'd been exposed to and they have this really unique position where the banks don't underwrite the risk and so they're one of a dozen firms that provide this type of financing and I, you know, and it was complicated. So I spent a lot of time understanding this and it was like the light bulb went off for me. It's like, wow, it's like, here's a return stream where it's just hard for me to see how this is not additive to client portfolios because these guys are very good at underwriting the risk. They're very good at structuring. You know, the return stream is such that you're sort of receiving quarterly payouts that have nothing to do, it's floating rate plus a royalty participation. So it has nothing to do with you know what inflate you know what inflation is what the economic growth story is it you know really is very idiosyncratic based on these underlying treatments and the structure they put in place 
And for me, that was just very formative to say, wow, you know, the more that we can incorporate these types of things into client portfolios, the more robust and the better our client experience is going to be. And so that was, you know, I think kind of one of the more memorable things that I worked on just because it was so eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, the private side is so fun, but it's a giant rabbit hole. There are so many, and I love the weird strategies. Like the weird, the weird ones are my favorite. Like I could just spend all day reading about some of these, um, and, ma- and many of them don't scale to, you know, giant size, which are why they're fun to uncover. But it's a sort of endless sea of opportunity and landmines, of course, too. But uh, that's what makes it fun. Uh, gentlemen, um, it has been a whirlwind, a lot of fun. We'll have to have you back next year. Where do people go? They want to find out more about you guys, invest along with you. What's the best spots? Well, our uh, website is evokeadvisors.com. We, we post a lot of insights on there. We, we have, we've done interviews with uh, money managers that are uh, recorded and, and placed there. We do market outlooks. Um, and then our ETF is rparetf.com that they can go to and, and check out the risk parity ETF. Very cool. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.